Thanks, Aaron. Good morning, everybody. Hey, welcome to church this morning. Good morning, everyone joining us online as well. We miss your voices here in the room. We miss your faces in the hall. We hope you can join us sometime soon. I, I just want to share quickly, I was sitting... Uh, right by that door as things were getting started this morning. The usher on this side of the room is getting his steps in this morning. Let's just give him a hand this morning. And uh, so, so just for the nine o'clock service, because you guys are so special, we're going to start something called the one chair rule, okay? And the one chair rule is only one chair between you and the next cohort of people, okay? And if you know them, no chair, okay? If you really know them, on the lap, okay? And look at, hey, look at these front rows, bare naked front rows almost right here. Just right, I mean, you get the anointing of the spit right on you. So these are wide open all the time. And also, if you're, you know, if you're a this cider, there's actually quite a bit of, there's a decent amount of room over here. So just so you know, next week when you come in, there's something about this side that everybody wants to be on this side, but what, anyway, there's a little room over here, okay? Yeah, they're all like, yeah, no, stay strong. A anyway, <laughs> lot, lot of room, and they, they're really nice, too. They, they look like really nice people over here. Okay, everybody got it? One chair rule, everybody on board with the one chair rule? Yes. Who's excited about the lap rule? Anybody? Okay. <laughs> Just kidding, okay, okay. Well, hey, we're uh, in a series about the Bible called Words to Live By. We've been talking about how good it would be to hear the sure and steady and unerring voice of God. How cool would it be to know that God is speaking to you personally, directly, intimately, and it's not just something you're making up in your head. In this series, we've talked about the difference between spiritualities uh, that tell us to find the truth uh, within ourselves and genuine spirituality that, that requires that God has to be able to speak to us from outside. We've talked about the relationship between Jesus and the Bible and why Christians in every corner of the planet this morning are gathered around this book. They read it and they say together, this is the word of the Lord. We've talked about how the Spirit of God takes this then, uh, this this. Word of God printed on paper in modern English or Mandarin or Spanish or whatever you're using, how the Spirit of God takes that word and makes it alive in our hearts. So God does speak in personal and direct and active ways. This is not just a dead letter on a page. It is the word of the Lord, and he promises to meet us here. And this morning, my, my hope or my goal is just to encourage every one of you uh, everyone gathered here, everyone gathered online, I want to encourage you this morning, is there anything that the Lord is inviting you to do in a new way to engage this word, okay? We're a congregation that loves the Bible, and we think very highly of the Bible, and you insist that we teach the Bible, and that's really, really awesome. My encouragement to you this morning, is there anything that God is inviting you to do to engage it personally in a new way, okay? So if you still have your Bibles or whatever you use to follow along in front of you, let me show you just a few things from our reading this morning. We're on page 172, and this is Deuteronomy 30, verse 11. Moses writes to Israel, For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you. 
Okay, if you've been around church for a while, you've probably heard, or you may have heard correctly, that the commandment of God is too hard for you. And that that's actually kind of the point. That at least part of the purpose of the commandment of God or the law of God is to help you feel the gap between who you are and who God has called you to be. The, the purpose of the law, in part, is to help you feel your need for the grace of God and to draw you to the cross of Jesus. The purpose of God's law, and we, and we see this all throughout the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, okay? A theme of Moses from Adam to Noah to Abraham to Moses himself is... You can't do it. You can't keep the law. This chapter, okay, you got it open in front of you. This chapter, chapter 30, begins with the assumption Israel's not going to keep the law. If you were to keep going, the next chapter, he, uh, Moses says to Joshua, hey, they're not going to do it. So what is verse 11 saying? This commandment is not too hard for you. Well, if you just look up your page, okay, look up your page. I don't... You know, our English publishers have put these helpful headings in there for you so you can find your way around easy. My heading over verse 1 says, repentance and forgiveness. So this is the context that Moses is writing into. He's writing to people who've already failed to keep the commandment. And they have returned to the Lord. That phrase, return to the Lord, is used about a half dozen times in those first 10 verses. Let me just share an example from verse 4. Okay, so this is the grace of God at work in verse 4. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you, and the Lord will God, the, the Lord your God will bring you into the land that he promised you. This is verse 6. Everybody look at verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. It's just a graphic way of describing what Jesus would call being born again, okay? God is going to take, he's going to cut away your old dead heart and give you a new heart. And so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and so that you may live. The, the context here is Moses is speaking to people who've already fallen short. They've returned to the Lord and God has given them a new heart in response. So verse 11, it's not talking about, hey, you can do it as a means of self-justification, okay? No one in Israel... And no one here this morning is going to get to heaven by doing a little better. Everybody got that? Say, I got it. Okay, this is, that's not what this is about. All he's saying here is, if you want to hear the voice of God, he can, you can understand him. He goes on in verse 11. He, he, verse, so verse 11, verse, yeah, sorry, verse 11. This commandment I command you today is not just for super special extra holy people. This is for anyone who wants to hear the voice of God and will listen, will turn to the Lord. Verse 12. It's not in heaven that you should say, who's going to go up to heaven and bring it down to us that, so we can hear it? God has not spoken in some kind of ethereal, otherworldly language that only, you know, the initiated can understand. You do not have to read the word of God in Latin or Arabic. It has not been written on golden tablets that only a few people in the whole world can interpret. God has spoken in words and phrases and used languages that ordinary people can read and understand. Verse 13, 
neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who's going to go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it? So the word of God is not just for the super strong. You don't have to be like a hero of the ancient world who climbs the highest mountain or swims the deepest ocean. The word of God, verse 14, is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so you can do it. You can know the living God. And if you return to the Lord, you can hear his personal, direct, and errant voice. It is not just for the super spiritual. If it were, okay, if it were for people who are super spiritual or something like that, well, a lot of us would be out, okay? If it were just for the super strong or the super moral or the super brave or whatever, a lot of us would be out. We'd be out of luck. But that is not who the word of God is for. It is for the humble. It's for those who turn to the Lord. And in principle, anybody can do that. Anybody here this morning, you can humble yourself and hear the voice of God. The word of God is near you, he says. It's in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. Now, some will say, you know, look at verse 14 and say, see, the word of God comes from within me. It's right there. It's in my mouth and in my heart. But that's, that's not what he's saying. He's saying it's in your mouth and in your heart, not that it originates there. In, in Israel at this time, the written word of God was kept in or near the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, has anyone seen Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark? Yeah, okay. Yes, that's it. It looks exactly like that, minus the ghosts who come out and melt your face off. The Word of God was kept there, in or near the Ark of the Covenant, and that's the place where God had said to Israel that I'll be there. You can come and meet me uh, in the tabernacle at the Ark. So, and, and that doesn't mean, by the way, that God is confined to one place. It's just from the beginning he's been saying, I'll be in the place where my written word is. I just think that's awesome. Please remember that. The next time you sit down and you open your Bible or gather around it with your people, whoever those people are, God has been saying since the beginning, I will be wherever my word is. And I just think that's awesome. And that's part of what he means when he says, the word is very near you. But it didn't, it didn't just sit in the ark, okay? Lots and lots of copies were made. And the priests and Levites, if you read chapter 31, the priests and Levites were commanded to take it out and read it to the people. They made a lot of copies. Deuteronomy chapter 17 says that any king in Israel was to sit down and make his own handwritten copy and carry it around with him all the time. And every Israelite household was expected to be familiar with the written word of God and even to have parts of it in their home. I don't mean to say that every household had like a whole copy of the books of Moses, but they all had parts of it and everyone was expected to have access to it. Someone in the community would have a copy of it. So here, here's this culture of the word of God described in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Okay, Deuteronomy 6 says, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. 
You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they'll be on the, you know, between your eyes. You'll write them on the doorpost of your house and on your, do you get the idea? Moses is speaking into a context where the, the transmission and the sharing of the word of God was a community affair. Every Sabbath day, the whole community, young and old, would gather around the word of God. Someone would recite it or they would read it. And, and even in the Middle East today, people memorize massive chunks of holy books. I mean, it's just incredible. So every kid in the circle could say, no, 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 dad, that's not how it goes. It's blah, 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 blah. And they would have the right to do that. And that's what Moses is talking about. The word is near you. It is in your mouth. It is in your heart. It's posted on your doors. It's on the gates of your house. You've shared it while you sit and while you walk and while you rise and when you, when you lay down. The word of God is for the humble, the simple. It's for kids. It's for anyone who wants to listen. What does Jesus say over and over again? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He doesn't say, those who wish they could hear, learn Latin. That's not what he says. He doesn't say, those who wish to hear, you better be a good person. You know, it's anyone who wants, who would be ready to listen. The word of God is for you. I first started engaging my Bible on my own, you know, without my parents forcing me to go to church or something like that. I first started engaging the Bible on my own when I was an 18-year-old freshman at UW River Falls. I had a mentor named Jason, and the first challenge that he gave me when I was 18 was to say, I want you to set aside 15 minutes this week, three times. I want you to find some place quiet, and I want you to just read, and I want you to pray. That was it. So I found this spot in the government document section of the UW River Falls Library. It's as quiet as a tomb and it smells just like government documents sound. <laughs> and I learned to read the word of God and to pray and to hear his voice. Uh, if, you, if you don't know where to begin with the word of God, you need a plan, a place, some people, and you need to unplug. Do you see what I did there with all those Ps? Now that's some next level pastor stuff right there. Okay? You need a plan, you need a place, you need some people, you need to unplug. Where are you going to do it? Uh, who's, who are you going to talk about it with? And your phone and your smartwatch and your Netflix account are what's going to kill your time. So just give it a break for 15 minutes. And have some people that you're going to share it with and talk about it with, okay? Now this doctrine of the word of God that we've been describing from Deuteronomy 30 is called the clarity of scripture. Or uh, older theologians called it the perspicuity of scripture, which for a word that means clarity is really not very clear at all. Anyway, the word, here's a working definition of the clarity of scripture for our time today. It says, the clarity of scripture is the promise that ordinary people using ordinary means can understand enough of what must be known, believed, and observed 
for them to be faithful Christians. Okay, everybody got it? I'm going to read it again. The clarity of Scripture is the promise that ordinary people, that means kids, that means teenagers, I'm talking to you this morning, ordinary people using ordinary means can understand enough of what must be known to be faithful Christians. Now, the clarity of Scripture, yeah, even you, the clarity of Scripture is not a wild assertion that every verse of Scripture is going to be immediately obvious to every person every time you open up the, the Bible. The, the Bible is a book, not a magic eight ball. You don't, you can't, you don't come to the Bible, okay, and, oh God, if I ask her out, is she going to say yes? <laughs> Do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. I'm going to take that as a no. That, that, that's, not, that's, not how, that's not how we read books, okay? The Bible is a, is a book. It's also a collection of books. It's meant to be read that way. And the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture simply says that using the ordinary means that you use to read other books, you can walk genuinely and faithfully with God. It is not up in heaven, so you have to send someone to get it. It's not in the abyss so that someone has to go down and get it. It's near you. It's in your heart and, and in your mouth. Now, just two quick objections. They're not actually that quick, okay. Two objections uh, this morning. If the Bible is so clear, why are there all these churches and denominations and traditions. And can't people make the Bible say whatever they want it to say? Hasn't the Bible been used throughout history to justify the most awful things? Let me introduce you to an old friend. It's good to dig this out every once in a while. It's been about two years since we put this on the screen. This is the bullseye. Is it on the screen? This is the bullseye. It's a reminder that in Christian doctrine, there are things we're going to die for, things that we'll defend, and things we'll discuss, okay? In the center of that bullseye, the die for circle, are things that basically all Christians throughout all time and in all places have believed. These are things that are reasonably clear in the Bible and that the Bible says are a, a major issue. Be these are things that you really can't get wrong and be a Christian in any meaningful sense of that word. These are things like, God is the creator of all things. Sin is a real thing that really does control and destroy us. The uniqueness of humanity, the divinity of Jesus, the trustworthiness of the Bible, the need for the cross of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the return of Jesus, the renewal of all things through Jesus, the judgment to come, salvation by faith, that Jesus is Lord, that Christians are to be changed by the Spirit of God, that holiness is something Christians are called to. There are certain ethical commands and obligations that the Bible says are heaven and hell issues and so on. It's actually a really pretty big set of doctrine. And I have served out, uh, you know, throughout my life, I've served alongside Christians of just about every stripe and hue and there is universal unanimity around these things. So I had a, a university student some years ago 
you know, ask me this question. She was wrestling with her faith. If the Bible is true, how can there be so many different kinds of churches? And I would just say to you this morning, there really are not. There really aren't. There are churches that believe the Bible is the word of God and therefore they agree on the center circle. And there are churches that do not agree on the center circle because they don't believe that the Bible is the word of God in any meaningful way. Uh, beyond the center circle, that's where we get into interesting intramural discussions. But you really cannot make the Bible say whatever you want it to say. Guys, there is a science to reading books. I'm not just talking about the Bible. I'm just saying there's a science to reading books in general. There's a grammatical, historical, literary method to reading. They teach it in eighth grade literature class. Uh, it's the method that, we're, it's, it's the tools we'll teach you in grasping God's word if you sign up for that class. It's the tools that I learned when I was an 18-year-old freshman at UW-River Falls. They're the same tools that I use this week to try to understand what verse 11 means, okay? But it's not up in heaven for the enlightened and it's not over the sea where only the strong can reach it. Now, it is true that throughout history people have tried to make the Bible say all kinds of things and that it has been used to justify all kinds of awful things. It's also undeniably true that the Bible is the voice that has corrected those errors and injustices. The abolitionists of the 19th century did not come to England and the United States with the secular creed. We've all evolved from nothingness and got here by the strong, eating the weak, therefore love each other. They came quoting scripture and appealing to the consciences of the nation. There is, in, in this center bullseye, there's an irresistible stream of truth that has run from Genesis through to the present day. And it's true that we have tried to divert that stream into all kinds of interesting causes, but the fact of the matter is that the Bible is strong enough to get the church back on track and will continue to do so. The center of that bullseye, the thing that makes Christians Christians really has not changed in 2,000 years. We still believe in the Apostles' Creed. We still affirm the Nicene Creed. These documents are thousands of years old and it's because they're clear. Throughout the centuries, people have tried to do things with the Bible and they gain traction for a while, but eventually it always comes back to this bullseye because ordinary mortals like you and I can read the Bible. So yes, reg regrettably, the Bible's been used to justify things, but no, it cannot be made to say whatever we want it to say. Now the second objection to the clarity of scripture I'm just gonna share about really quickly is, is this. And I had a friend articulate this in like the most beautiful way uh, back in December. I had a friend in December who was reading the Bible for the very first time. And I remember at one point he said, I just cannot believe that whoever created this universe 
with its billions and billions of galaxies and quarks and dark matter and the, the chemistry that keeps your body alive at this moment, I just cannot bring myself to believe that that God could be known through the weakness of human language. He said it a lot better than I'm saying it right now. I wish you could have been at the table. He said it a lot better than that. My first thought was, God, please allow every Christian at Faith Community Church to be this in awe of you, okay? But what I said to him was, you're right. You're right. But that is not what the Bible is claiming to do. There is no place in the Bible where it claims to say everything that there is to say about God. There's no way. In a million, billion, trillion years, we are still going to be in awe of the love and the majesty and the creativity and the goodness of God. The Bible makes no claim to say it all. It doesn't, it, it's not an exhaustive book, but it does speak truly. And it speaks clearly. And at no point in the next million, billion years are, is what is God ever going to contradict what he's already said? So God has said, my word will stand forever. You remember from 2 Peter chapter 1, this is four weeks ago. I don't know if you were here four weeks ago. 2 Peter chapter 1, we read about how the Bible is a lamp in a dark place. It helps us to see enough to get us home. But one day, the sun is going to rise and we won't need the lamp in the same way that we do right now. Do you remember that it was a great sermon? A lot of you were here. It's a wonderful sermon. The fact is that, that while human language can't do it all, it is a gift. And it is sufficient and it's strong enough to tell us what we need to know to walk truly with the living God. When someone tells you and especially if they're a Christian teacher, okay? When a Christian teacher tells you that God is so transcendent that we cannot talk about him in any meaningful way with words, first of all, they're denying what God has said about himself. Secondly, it's philosophically self-refuting. That's another sermon. But third, while it sounds like a humble attempt to honor God, they are almost always trying to get around something in the center circle. People are always trying to drive a wedge between Jesus and the written word of God. We've said that every week in this series. And they're going to talk about how silly and arrogant all of our human theologizing is. And the Christian faith, they're going to say, the Christian faith is utterly mysterious. It's about things that can't be put into words. You can't put God in a box of human language. And while that ha has all the appearance of godliness and humility, it is almost never the issue. They're trying to get you around something in the center circle. People who are supposed to be Christian teachers who say those things are not listening to what God himself has said about the strength of his word. We agree, by the way, that you can't put God in the box of human language. We're not trying to do that. We agree that God is greater than anything we could imagine or contrive. But that's exactly why we need the written word of God. 
Because if we don't have that, we're back to our silly intuitions about life. Just, okay, you got Deuteronomy 30 open still in front of you. Just turn over one page. Whoop! Last verse of chapter 29 says this. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. Are there secret things in the universe? Are there mysteries at the heart of the Christian religion? Is God greater and more awesome than our puny little minds can imagine? Yeah! Absolutely! And they belong to God. And someday we'll get a taste of those things. But he keeps going. But the things that are revealed belong to us so that we can do them. So, I'm just, I'm not, we're not trying to shrink, the clarity of Scripture is not trying to shrink God down. It's not trying to make God puny. It's just saying, if you're a kid this morning and you can read or you can hear, you can hear the voice of God. And if you're an 80-year-old scholar, you are still not bored. Genesis is a great example. We just spent four months in Genesis last fall. A, a kid with her little Jesus storybook Bible can tell you the basic message of Genesis that all Christians agree on and that we all have to believe. God created the world. We've made a mess of it. He's promised to fix it through a son. And he's faithful to that promise even when we're when we, when we have issues. Good job, kiddo. That's it. And every Christian has to believe that. Yeah, you know, we saw a little bit last fall. Genesis is one of the most intricately woven, one of the most beautifully shaped, structurally amazing books in the history of the world. So that you, a, a lifetime of study would not be wasted on the book. So we approach the word of God with a sense of reverence and with a sense of awe and with humility. But we should also come this week with confidence. You should come this week knowing that God wants to speak to you and he speaks truly. Also, hey, good news everybody, you're not the first generation of Christians. Did you know that? We, we have access, literally have access to a hundred generations of Christian thought and Christian commentary. We have each other. We don't read in a vacuum. If you are getting something out of the Bible that all the godly people around you say, eh, I don't think so, you should probably step back and say, maybe it's me, okay? But when you sit down this, read to, this week to read, or when you gather around it with your people this week, you can be confident that, that the awesome, holy, omnipotent God wants to speak to you. The word is near you. It is in your heart and in your mouth. And all that is needed is that you would want to hear. That's it. There is a danger in Bible reading Isaiah chapter 6 is one of those, you know, it's in my top 10 favorite chapters in the Bible. It's one of those awesome chapters where Isaiah is given a glimpse into heaven. He sees the Lord high and lifted up, 
And he's so overcome with what he sees, he actually calls down a curse on himself. He says, woe is me, I'm undone. But then God speaks and he says, who will go and who should we send? And Isaiah says, I'll go, I'll go. And God says to him, okay, I want you to go. But understand as you go that you're going to speak and they're not going to listen. And what's going to happen is the more you talk, the harder their hearts are going to get and the deafer their ears will become. Now Jesus picks up that same scripture. In the New Testament, Jesus is teaching these massive crowds and he starts speaking in parables. And the disciples say, hey, why, do, why parables? Why aren't we being more clear here? And he says, he quotes Isaiah chapter 6 and he says, I need to do it this way because they're not ready to listen. And if I were to speak clearly, they would just get deafer and deafer. If you're here this morning, and some of you are doing this, you hear the word of God, you read the word of God, you understand what it's saying, and you're saying, nah, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to kind of do my own thing. The danger in that is that if it continues, your ears will grow deaf, and your heart will get hard until it destroys you. So the word of God is for anyone who wants to listen. And it's possible to make yourself deaf. Now, in the book of Romans, this, this, we're going to wrap up with this and then we're going to go to communion. In the book of Romans, I just have to, to, to share this with you. The Apostle Paul takes the scripture we just looked at in Deuteronomy. The Apostle Paul takes that scripture and he says, this is actually about Jesus. So this is another place, Romans chapter 10, where the word of God and Jesus are so conflated, you can't even pull them apart. But here's what Paul says, Romans 10, 6. He says, the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. What does it say? The word is near you in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul, just, Paul takes the, he takes what Moses is teaching about the word of God and he says, Actually, this is about Jesus too. And he squishes them together. And, and this is the message. If salvation were just for smart people, a lot of us would be out. If salvation were just for moral people or good-looking people or athletic people or whatever, well, then only those people could be saved. But the ground is level before the word of God and at the foot of the cross. And all that is needed is need. And you can do that. Whoever you are, you could be in need. You can manage that. And that's what Moses is saying. It's what Paul is saying. If you want to hear, then listen. And whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's an awesome, awesome message. As we go to communion this morning, just a couple of, uh, I'm going to give you some time to pray on your own. Two questions. One is, is there anything 
and, and teenagers, I'm speaking to you too, okay? Is there anything that God is inviting you to do in a new way to engage his word, okay? What's, and, and, and what will your plan be? Where will you, your place, your people, and how will you unplug, okay? But the other is I just, I want you to take time this morning to give thanks. You didn't have to climb up to heaven to bring Christ down to you. You didn't have to crawl into the abyss to go find him. Jesus drew near to you. He's in your mouth and in your heart. And all that you needed was need. Praise God. Let me just give you 90 seconds right now just to spend some time in prayer before we share. Father in heaven, thank you for your son Jesus and we thank you for your word. God, I ask in the week ahead that you would honor every attempt that's made to open your word and to hear your voice. Would you draw near? Would you make Faith Community Church a place where we are engaging your word in personal and real ways. We ask for your help to do that in Jesus' name. On the night that the Lord Jesus was betrayed, it says that he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Thank God. Thank God. Let's sing together. Let's stand and sing.